It's six o'clock, and you are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City. KCPC, Camino. Good evening. I'm Claudio Mendonça, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. The rate of people testing positive for the coronavirus here in California continues to rise to levels our state hasn't seen in months. And the Dixie Fire, burning in Butte and Plumas counties, has started to generate its own weather. These stories, plus a conversation with critics of Governor Gavin Newsom's COVID-19 restrictions, on tonight's California Report. After a brief look at local news and regional weather, Felton Pruitt talks with Penelope Sullivan about her website, The Freedom Love Project. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. Crews continue to face challenging conditions in battling large wildfires across Northern California. The Dixie Fire burning in Butte and Plumas counties has burned more than 40,000 acres and remains 15% contained. Here's incident meteorologist Julia Rutherford describing some of the smoke columns above the fire over the last few days. We had a couple of time periods where they got big enough uh, that it Actually, the fire actually generated a thunderstorm over itself um, that led to some lightning out ahead of it and some really gusty and erratic winds. The utility PG&E filed an incident report late Sunday night saying its infrastructure may have contributed to the start of that fire. Thunderstorms and heavy smoke have also challenged crews battling the Tamarack Fire in Alpine County south of Lake Tahoe. That fire has burned more than 39,000 acres. There is still no containment on that one. Turning to the pandemic, the rate of people testing positive for the coronavirus in California continues to rise to levels the state hasn't seen for months. The weekly test positivity rate now stands at 4.1%, the highest level it's been at since February. Concerns over the spread of the Delta variant, particularly among people who are unvaccinated, has forced local health officials to take action. L.A. County is mandating masks indoors for everyone, no matter of their vaccination status. Most of the Bay Area, Sacramento and Yolo counties are strongly recommending masks indoors as well. When asked if he might implement another statewide mask mandate at a news conference yesterday, Governor Newsom avoided formally answering the question. Instead, talking about the importance of getting vaccinated. If we want to end this pandemic once and for all, if we want to turn the page, we can get it done in a matter of weeks, not months. It's as simple as this. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Some counties are now going door to door to try to get more Californians the vaccine. Turning to September's recall now, critics of Governor Gavin Newsom say his COVID-19 restrictions were unfair and damaging to small businesses, thousands of which permanently closed during the pandemic. Now, as KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati explains, Newsom is emphasizing his small business roots ahead of the election. In Calaveras County, tucked in the foothills of the Sierra in California's gold country, nearly one in five voters signed the petition to recall Newsom, the third highest rate of any county in the state. And small business owners like Gretel Tuscornia were at the heart of the campaign. Tuscornia owns the Pickle Patch Restaurant in San Andreas and Mingo's on Main, a store in downtown Angels Camp. Kind of a, just an eclectic group of snarky items that make people laugh when they come in. When the pandemic hit, Tuscornia closed her shop, but felt big business was getting a pass. Places like Walmart, 
and Costco that are open all the time, serving hundreds of people. Super contradictory. Newsom had set up a color-coded system to restrict business activities, which he credits with saving lives. But Tascornia felt whiplash. I kind of just got to the point where I was just tired of the, oh, it's, it's red, oh, it's purple, oh, it's green, oh, it's blue, oh, it's I don't know what color of the rainbow we were in this time. So when the governor declared a second stay-at-home order in December, Tascornia and other local business owners in Calaveras decided to ignore it. So I just stopped listening and I just went about business as usual. Tascornia stayed open for outdoor dining with a new item on the menu a petition to recall the governor. Sometimes they came in just to sign that. They didn't have lunch, they didn't buy anything, they just came in to sign it. Recall organizers say 900 business owners across the state offered petition signings in their shops. Others went viral with their outrage. You might remember Angela Marsden, an L.A. area restaurant owner whose business was shuttered while film production continued right next door. And Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. Thanks in part to the anger of these small business owners, Newsom is facing the most important political challenge of his career. But as the governor tells it, a quarter century ago, he was in the same shoes as these store owners. In the 90s, Newsom ran a wine shop and restaurants and felt politicians were out of touch with the needs of small business. So he complained to the mayor of San Francisco. That guy, Willie Brown, was angry with me and shut me up by making me chair of the Parking and Traffic Commission. And here I am. It's all damn connected. Being the frustrated store owner was Newsom's original political pitch two decades ago. His experiences in small business, he felt like he could help people using those experiences. Ellie Schaefer ran Newsom's very first campaign, his 1998 run for supervisor. Unlike your average shop owner, Newsom had ties to some of San Francisco's wealthiest and most well-connected families. He still ran up against roadblock after roadblock about starting his small business. And His philosophy, you know, at the time was like, if I'm running up against these roadblocks and I have the leg up that I have, what are other people who don't have these advantages running up against? Now, as business owners face months of back rent after a year of digging into personal savings and watching inventory go bad, Newsom is directing billions of dollars in grants to help those businesses get back on their feet. And he argues that he still gets it, that he uniquely understands their plight. After all, to find the last governor who went straight from running a business into politics, you'd have to go back roughly a century. At a visit to a San Francisco restaurant last month, I asked Newsom if that history made him feel a special responsibility to small business owners across the state. It's a big point of pride. It's personal for me. Um, You know, I can't express to you how many extraordinary things have happened in my life because I had the privilege to be behind a counter serving other people. Back in Calaveras County, Gretel Tascornia isn't convinced. I don't know if Newsom ever can be considered one of us. And now the governor has less than a month until voting begins to convince California shop owners that he still understands what they're going through. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati in Calaveras County. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, 
clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, July 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great day. The Sacramento Bee is reporting that levels of the virus that causes COVID-19 detected in human wastewater have grown substantially since about the start of June, according to sewer shed data analyzed by a Stanford-based research team. The data collection effort, called Sewer Coronavirus Alert Network, or SCAN, examines samples collected daily from several wastewater treatment plants in California, including Sacramento and Davis. What we do is we use settled solids that are collected from wastewater treatment plants, and then we look for SARS-CoV-2 viral genomes in those wastewater solids to get a sense of how much COVID transmission is happening at a community level. That from Marlene Wolf, one of the researchers leading the Stanford project. Wastewater testing has a few advantages over traditional forms of testing. It can detect increased viral activity more quickly than clinical testing, according to Wolf, sometimes several days to a week ahead, depending on whether lab resources are in high demand. Wolf says, though, that the wastewater program is intended to work hand-in-hand with clinical data and not as a replacement. Locally, Nevada County Public Health is reporting 14 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today, 122 cases are listed as active, and five people are hospitalized. In regional weather, for Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, expect clear skies with a low around 64. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 92. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe region, tonight will be clear with a low around 49 degrees. Tomorrow will also be sunny with a high near 82 degrees. And for Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, Clear skies with a low around 59 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny and warm with a high near 94. Recently, Felton Pruitt sat down with Penelope Sullivan, creator of the website Freedom Love Project, where she's collected information and alternative ideas regarding the treatment of COVID-19. I'm talking with Penelope Sullivan, who has a website called freedomloveproject.com. You're a resident of Nevada City, and I wanted to know more about your website. Tell people what the website is about. Okay. Freedom Love Project was designed last, I would say, in 2020, early on. And I was very concerned because I saw that people were very worried about COVID, hearing about COVID, and I really wanted to empower them with things that they could do to take charge of their health. And I noticed that the CDC, the WHO, nobody was really mentioning anything that would boost immunity. And so we had started a local herbal coalition to donate herbs to single mothers and to the Hopi. But I just really wanted to start collecting data 
that was being shown, different doctors coming out that were treating COVID symptoms, different nutraceuticals that were being promoted to help people, and just um, have that in one resource hub that people could easily access. What's your background that would give you the expertise to do this? I would say I've been in the health field, the holistic health field for 27 years. Uh, I've studied herbology as well as holistic nutrition. And more than anything, I am a concerned mother. I saw these children. They were no longer in school. Uh, I care about humanity, really. I see people that were very, very worried, people that were getting sick, and I wanted to empower them. So I would say that is the biggest thing. So if we go to freedomloveproject.com, what are we going to find there and how is that going to help us? Okay. So it's broken up into three different sections. The first section is straight about empowering your health. I tried to get as many medical doctors on there as possible. And so just common practices that boost immunity and build your overall wellness and vitality. And then the second portion is really, it's questioning the common narrative, the mainstream narrative that we are hearing and really, many, many, many doctors are on there. We see um, doctors' coalitions throughout the world coming forward, saying that we got this, we can treat this. They are talking about things like COVID long haulers. They're asking, are, where is our early treatment? That is the real big message is on early treatment. In our community, unfortunately, I've had friends that are teenagers all the way up to people in their 60s. And they are losing friendships in the cases of people in their 60s for decades-long friendships because of a difference of opinion. And I would say that in our community, things have been so heavily politicized. And so even mentioning something as simple as hydroxychloroquine, and it's just a dead-end conversation. So on my website, I went around, I literally started searching for doctors that were treating COVID symptoms successfully. And I started emailing them and I started calling them and I started working with Renette Senem to start interviewing them because I knew that we needed this information within our community. And the sad part is, is many of these doctors, even though they have been doctors for decades, their reputation is being questioned. But one of my, my new favorites that I just a hero is Dr. Peter McCullough. Now, when you look at his credentials, he's a cardiologist, he's an internist, he's an academic professor of medicine, he's the editor of three different journals. He went to 17 years of school after high school, all based on medicine. And he really, in the beginning, he was not willing to wait for the AMA to tell him how to treat COVID. And so instead, because he cared so much about his patients, started finding these other innovative physicians and how they were treating COVID and started putting their protocols together and then came up with a study with many, many, many other doctors that has been peer-reviewed. He now has over 40 peer-reviewed articles and studies only on COVID. And so I have people like him. I tried to get as many medical doctors as possible to give us hope and to empower us with another option besides the vaccine. Would you say then you're telling people not to get the vaccine or just to make an educated decision? Um, for myself in particular, I personally would never choose to be vaccinated. When I do the risk to benefit analysis, it doesn't make sense to me. Right now, this vaccine has more adverse events reported than all of the vaccines combined. 
Um, that being said, I am a firm believer in people do need just, I want people to take the time to go beyond the CDC, what they say. If you want to believe in the CDC, that's great, but go for the citations. Look for that gold standard science. Take the time to go beyond the headline and see where the primary sources that they, the CDC is getting this information. And I would encourage you to look to these doctors that are treating COVID successfully. And then from that, if you feel that that's the way, uh, I'm super concerned. I had a, a pediatric, I'm with Children's Health Defense, and I, I had a pediatric RN who works in the ICU reach out to me as a whistleblower. She said she was so deeply concerned that she had five teens with myocarditis in her hospital and even more outpatient that she was treating and even more on other floors that had more mild cases. And she had never seen anything like this before. And I have talked to different people in the medical field locally, and they are seeing you know, an 18-year-old locally in Nevada County that had a heart attack, a person in their 20s working out and have a stroke, a man in his 50s die of a heart attack, and we are not hearing this from our local news channels. You know, we're only hearing the benefits. And I think that to make a true informed consent, we really need to know about early treatments and how that impacts COVID statistics, which we're not hearing. We need to hear about hydroxychloroquine, about ivermectin, and these um, bunestinine, these multifaceted drug approaches, which people like Dr. McCullough, Dr. Freed, Vladimir Zelenko, they are using this DD Raoul in France. Um, these are literally happening all over the world right now. And our community, unfortunately, has not been willing, except for Renette, to discuss about any of these other options. And that has to be in the informed consent and risk to benefit analysis. We've been talking with Penelope Sullivan, who has the website freedomloveproject.com. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another Money Matters. An interesting development has been occurring in the Fed Repurchase Agreement Operation Facility known as Repo. The repo market is administered by the Federal Open Market Committee, referred to as the FOMC, and when they act, it is called Open Market Operations. The repo market is a federal facility that moves cash in and out of the banking system on a daily basis to satisfy liquidity requirements and hopefully control the economy. When financial institutions like banks and money market funds need day-to-day -day cash, they can borrow money from the facility. They then offer up their U.S. Treasury IOUs, called Treasuries, into the facility as collateral. This transaction is called a repo transaction. Conversely, if they have too much cash, they can deposit it into the facility and in return take Treasuries back out. This is called a reverse repo transaction. The financial institutions that are authorized to use the facility keep a stock of treasuries and cash on hand to facilitate the transactions between them and the Fed. Think of the repo facility as a huge octopus handing money out and taking money in daily. The financial institutions use this facility to fund their day-to-day -day operations. The Feds also use the facility to inject more cash into the system when the economy slows or take money out of the economy when it overheats. 
It's sort of a two-way street that helps the financial institutions control their cash flow while helping the Fed gas the economy, which is stimulated, or put the brakes on, which is slowing it down. Gassing the economy might occur at a time when the economy is ailing, like during COVID or 08, and braking might be needed if inflation takes off. When the financial institutions park excess cash at the Fed in a reverse repo operation, they earn little to no interest, but it's a safe place to park as much cash as they desire. Keep in mind the facility is very short-term and frequently described as an overnight conduit for cash. When the financial institutions need funds and therefore are borrowing cash out of it, they use the treasuries they own as collateral. Then they pay interest on the cash they borrowed, which is called the repo rate. The feds can also increase the repo rate to discourage borrowing and slow the economy. Or if they lower the borrowing rate, it makes money cheaper to the financial institutions and speeds the economy up as it encourages them to loan that cash out to consumers and the like. During 08 and 09, and early on in COVID, and during other times when the economy or markets faltered, there was more money borrowed than deposited as the users needed money to weather the downturns. During these high withdrawal periods, the feds have had to pour billions and billions of new money into the repo market to satisfy the cash needed. In 08 and 09, they also extended what type of collateral they would accept to include mortgage and bond-type products. Many said this relaxation of collateral requirements went beyond the Fed's repo market operational mandate, but that's a story for a different day. Usually, the repo market operates in some sort of balance, meaning it requires no new money or interference from the Fed. If the repo facility does require assistance, it's usually because there is a shortage of cash and they have to add more. Rarely does the ebb and flow of money go the other way, meaning those authorized to use the Fed seldom deposit cash into the facility for very long. In essence, the banks always need money and seldom have an excess of it. Not so in recent weeks, however. Financial institutions seem flush with cash and have parked close to a half a trillion dollars at the Fed facility, and more is coming in every day. A change from just a few short months ago, the repo market is seeing the rare event of too much cash being put into it. Theories abound as to why these money institutions have so much cash right now. They range from the Fed stimulus programs to consumers apparently going on a spending spree or just the mountains of cash that has been dumped into the system by the Fed for whatever the reason. Either that or the supply of IOUs from the Fed, which are those U.S. Treasuries again, is in short supply. But I have a hard time believing that. Whatever the reason, the repo market is a bellwether for stress in the financial system, and right now it's saying there's a lot of money floating around, and therefore the banking system may be doing just fine. That's it for today's Money Matters. Opinions expressed here are of my own, and not necessarily of this media outlet, of any bank or investment advisory firm, and nothing stated is meant to ensure guarantee or be construed as investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com. Everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and am a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Have a great day. That wraps up our newscast for Tuesday, July 20th. We get support from Atmosphere Design Build, a full-service architecture and construction firm creating distinctively modern, high-performance buildings throughout California. 
specializing in energy-efficient, healthy, net-zero energy homes for a low-carbon future. AtmosphereDesignBuild.com And Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering frames and supplies for arts and crafts. Phone orders and curbside pickup available. Located on Sutton Way in Grass Valley or online, benfranklin-crafts.com. Well, coming up next at 6.30, it's Educationally Speaking. And at 7 p.m., as always, we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a safe evening.